Part One, Chapter Eighteen of Johnny Reb and Billy Yank by Alexander Hunter. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The next day, the preparation of breakfast was an event of great enjoyment to us. Our meal was of the primitive order, but we dallied and lingered over cooking it, enjoying the odor of the meat and coffee as it came streaming in grateful, fragrant clouds of incense from the fire anticipation filling up the full measure of the pleasure and in this wise did our foot cavalry proceed to cook it each man alike though there were no regulations on the subject such knowledge being ever evolved from the innate genius and lofty inspiration of the occasion opening his haversack wherein the rations were carried an uninviting bag of a storeroom which was by long use grimed with dirt blackened by smoke and greased with fat of bacon that came oozing through the canvas johnny reb would extract a chunk of fat wrapped up in a piece of rag and cut therefrom some slices then from the bottom of the haversack he would exhume his hardtack as he called the crackers and prop them up before the blazing fire to toast next drawing the ramrod from the rifle he would run it through the slice of meat and hold it in the flames when it had caught fire as he intended it should he would suspend it over the crackers which had been toasted brown and permit the grease to fall drop by drop upon them and then he filled the old battered tin cup with water and adjusted it nicely upon the coals this required some art and strict attention as a tilt was ever dangerous and chunks were generally very slippery and very treacherous as soon as the water bubbled he placed therein a handful of roasted rye or parched corn, and when this boiled some ten minutes longer the coffee was made, and breakfast, dinner, and supper, just as you might name it by the clock, it was all the same to him, was served. Except when he captured coffee, or exchanged tobacco on picket duty with Billy Yank, Johnny never tasted it pure, and as for sugar, it was rarely issued to him now, so we used sorghum molasses instead to sweeten our concoction, and because sorman was of southern manufacture one of its chief merits was its abundance the mixture of rye and sorghum was enough to produce deadly illness in any one who swallowed it not excepting a rebel soldier but we learned to love it true we would tire of the rye sometimes when it became very monotonous but then we had sassafras tea to fall back upon for the sake of a little pleasant diversion as handy andy expresses it and altogether we did not complain. It was quantity rather than quality with the soldier. He could pardon the first if the latter suited him, and doubtless Johnny enjoyed his humble meal more than many a guest his sumptuous dinner. Indeed, muddy water and crushed corn and molasses were sweeter to his taste than the rarest wines to the sated palate of the millionaire. The burnt slice of fat bacon consumed with keener relish than was the canvas back, the mountain mutton, the ham boiled in champagne of the bon vivant and after all hunger is the best sauce and robust health the best stimulant while there is nothing like a battle for an appetizer try it if you are inclined to be skeptical was there ever citizen in the world think you who extracted quite the amount of perfect content and pleasant reveries from his fifty-cent havana as the private by the campfire from his old briar-root pipe every soldier smoked it was a necessity of his being and then he had the blessing of pure tobacco carried in a bag hung from the buttonhole of his jacket most of these bags were beautifully embroidered for southern women always gave their sweethearts and husbands two things and kept them well supplied besides 
tobacco bags, and Bibles. A soldier, popular with the fair sex, and who never burned the incense of devotion to one, but dozens, had usually enough Bibles given him to supply the whole company. After a battle the men were ever in a complacent mood, and having escaped destruction and mutilation, they loved to sit and recall each incident. So around the fires after the fray, for the weather was damp and cool, the whole campaign was discussed from first to last, and as we continued to gain information from various sources, the rationale of the attack became clear, the different parts of the puzzle fitted together into a harmonious whole, and that which had been so hard to understand grew intelligible in the broad light of facts and reason. What was wanting even then, time, which shifts all things, supplied, and so the history of the battle gained its whole completeness. Our brigade commander came in for a heavy share of censure, and could he have assumed the magic cap of the fairy which rendered the wearer invisible, and strolled along in the vicinity of the different watchfires any night just about that time, and listened to the expressed sentiments of the rank and file, heard the unmeasured terms in which they denounced his fatal blunder of sending them into a battle four deep, pell-mell, to be shot down with never a chance to retaliate, he would have resigned next day. General Kemper denied having so blundered, and said he wished to make a display of his force, to prevent the enemy from advancing and retaking his camp. This may be so, but for all that the soldiers blamed him and him alone for their mad rush and useless waste of life. About seven o'clock the morning after the battle, the brigade fell in line and halted on the spot where it had fought the day before. Its dead lay thick around, just as they had fallen. The regiment then took position in a redoubt, where was placed a four-gun battery of Stuart's horse artillery but a little distance away. Colonel Corse made a short speech to his regiment, informing the men that in all probability the enemy would attack us in heavy force to try and retake his captured camp, and that the regiment must hold the fort and protect the battery at all hazards. In for it again, we thought, but then we would be fighting behind breastworks, and the enemy would do the storming. So with the metaphorical boot on the other foot, the men answered by a cheer that had the genuine ring in it. The ranks of the regiment were quite full by this time, and the stragglers had all returned. In every organization there were always many such, who slipped out when going into battle, and as surely returned the next day, with wondrous stories of what they had seen and heard and done. Stories, indeed, which imposed on no one, not even themselves. Of course a good many in the company became separated from it in the charge through the camp. These returned, and so it turned out that several who had been deemed killed were received safe and sound to the great joy of their comrades, and welcoming them not exactly as repented prodigals, but as one alive from the dead, the regiment was only too sorry it had no fatted calf to kill. And now, after we had been placed in position and sharpshooters told off, the colonel issued orders that we should pay the last sad duties to some Alexandrians. Most of the dead had been already buried. A shallow grave was dug in the redoubt, and Lieutenant Gray and three others, Privates Higdon and Marey, Company H, Lunt, Company A, were laid on one blanket side by side and covered with another. A prayer was read, and then the dirt thrown upon them. One of the four had been a great traveler, had passed through many lands and crossed many waters, had walked along the Corso at Rome, sauntered through the Prado of Berlin, ridden through the great Arabian desert, had seen the rush of gold-seekers to the El Dorado of the New World, here at last to sleep in death, 
side by side with those whose lives had been so unconsciously linked with his, unknown one to another, these men, day by day and year after year, had woven out the woof of their separate lives. The fates who weave the thread of life had drawn these strands together and woven them into one. But yesterday Atropos cut the cord, and now one grave. A more lonesome, forbidding spot than the place where we had charged the evening before can scarcely be imagined. The camp had been plundered of everything of value. Not a pound of coffee nor a pint of liquor or a piece of meat was left. The ground all along the scene of conflict had been trampled into a perfect quagmire and looked like a barnyard on a rainy day. Here and there lay the body of some rebel or Yankee soldier, half submerged in the mud, the mire around now tinged to a reddish hue by the life-blood that poured through some bleeding wound. Often on dragging out the corpse and washing off the muck and mire they would find some comrade whom they thought had escaped or was missing. It was only on going to the barn just in front, where the colors of the seventeenth went down three times, that the tremendous severity of the enemy's fire could be realized. The whole side fronting them was shattered and torn by the missiles. There was not a space as large as the human hand that had not been struck by either shot, shell, or ball. Talk of a building being riddled, one might not understand the meaning of the term who had not looked on such a sight as this. With such tangible proof before the eyes of how thick and fast the bullets flew, to say nothing of the grape and shell, it was a source of wonder how, in the face of such a fire, any man had come out alive. It was nearly nine o'clock when the sound of distant guns was heard, and in a few moments the regiment was formed into a line inside the works. "'The Yankees will be along soon,' our captain was heard to remark. The four guns were placed and sighted, the ammunition piled in heaps beside each gun. The rammers threw off their jackets and bared their arms to the elbow, and officers and men bent forward, shading their eyes with their hands to catch a first glimpse of the foe. But the pine woods effectually concealed all that was going on. Evidently there was fighting progressing somewhere on the left. All at once the noise of a stirring hurrah was heard, and from the woods about three hundred yards on our left there came a long line in blue advancing against the brigade on our left, commanded by Generals Mahone and Pryor. It was a thrilling sight, and we held our breath in intensity of excitement. The charge was made with all the regularity of a parade, but encountering a heavy fire from the brigades, retired in confusion. There was further fighting on the extreme left, but none of the men in blue favored us with their special compliments, and the hours passed quietly by. After a while, some of our slightly wounded wended their way to the rear, and being interrogated, told the same tale that ninety-nine out of a hundred ever tell, tales of fighting against fearful odds and of dreadful slaughter amounting almost to annihilation. In every battle the exaggeration is invariable. Perhaps this class of soldier, feeling himself for once safe and lucky too, takes a malicious delight in heightening the effect for the benefits of others going into action. Perhaps his fear had actually magnified the state of affairs, and out of the abundance of his terrors he spoke what to him seemed truth. Perhaps, having been terrorized, he wanted misery to keep him company. However it may be, the same chorus was ever kept up in the rear of the battle, and at first it had the effect of exciting the reserve to run, at the bursting of the introductory shell. But the boy soon became used to the recital and took it thereafter as a matter of course. While waiting in this state of suspense for the enemy's advance, an officer, seemingly about thirty-five, splendidly mounted and high in command, 
rode up, and slapping Colonel Corse familiarly on the shoulder, made some jocular remark. He was a striking figure, and he sat in his saddle like Hotspur himself, who witched the world with his noble horsemanship. His face was bronzed. His eyes, the most noticeable feature, were of a faint blue, of that kind that keeps deep in their depths changing lights and shadows, but whose prevailing expression was mirth and laughter. A huge beard, full and flowing as the Norsemen's of old, covered his face. His uniform was rich, even foppish. The sleeves of his coat slashed with gold braid in the form of a Hungarian knot that extended nearly to the shoulder. His pants, light blue with silver cord, were met at the knee by a pair of embroidered cavalry boots, at the heels of which were attached large silver Mexican spurs that jingled with every motion of his impatient horse. On his head he wore a wide-brimmed slouch hat with a golden cord around the crown. One side looped up with a gilt star, while a large plume fell from the brim nearly to his shoulder. His voice was rich and vibrating, and his laughter was music to the ear. So full, so joyous, that once heard it lingered in the memory. As he reined up his horse at the entrance of the redoubt, sitting there with the surroundings of glittering bayonets and unmuzzled cannon, with a background of battle-smoke drifting through the air, he made a picture that would have inspired an artist. One could imagine just such a princely form in those stirring scenes which Froissart describes, or picture him in the Holy Land, surrounded by the Douglas, as he threw the heart of Bruce, encased in the jeweled locket, straight in the midst of the Saracens, plunging and forcing his way among the countless infidels, and dying at last beside his Scottish prince. Imagine just such a man leading the imperial guard of the Grand Army as it struck the Austrian center at Wagram. At all times the born dragoon, the fearless soldier, or best of all, see him as the prince of cavalrymen, one of the bravest spirits that ever fought for the Confederate cause, one of the noblest that ever unsheathed a sword, one of the truest that ever offered up on a country's altar a stainless life, one of the knightliest that ever graced the page of history. Quote, as full of valor as of kindness, primely in both. Unquote. General Jeb Stuart, Commander-in-Chief of the Cavalry. The enemy on our front and left began in a dulcetory way to shell our troops on the Williamsburg Road, though doing no special damage. A rebel regiment, just fresh from camp and newly organized, was marching not two hundred yards from us across the field, when suddenly two or three shells from the enemy's battery burst high above their heads. Instantly every man, from the colonel down to the drummer boy, dropped flat on all fours, with a promptitude and in a perfection of time that was wonderful to behold. In a short time officers and men arose and kept on in the line of march. Again the little puffs of blue smoke appeared in the sky, followed by the peculiar noise made by a shell in bursting, and again the whole command sought the embrace of Mother Earth. While in this ridiculous situation, floundering on the ground, a mounted officer, probably a general, rode up, and from his earnest gesticulations we could see that he was not mincing words or flattering the hearers. After a while they proceeded on their way without practicing maneuvers, maneuvers not laid down in Hardy's tactics. Evidently from this they had been under fire in more ways than one. This weak-kneed regiment was afterwards placed in the first brigade, and a braver set of men never shouldered muskets, proving that all men are timid in encountering for the first time an unknown danger. A year afterwards, and a whole battery might have played upon them and not so much as have broken their dressed lines. The day passed, 
The musketry died away, and the guns only fired at intervals. Most of the soldiers lay around the redoubt and dozed. After sundown, the regiment was formed and commenced the march back in the direction of the old camping ground. The roads were badly cut up by the artillery that had passed and repassed during the twenty-four hours, full of holes and ruts into which, amid the utter darkness that surrounded them like a pall, the soldiers were falling and wallowing every step of the way. After a most exhausting wade, the brigade halted in a swamp and went into bivouac. There was not a soldier in the command who had not been spattered from head to foot with mud. The prospect of a night spent in this spot was not cheering. Some of us found two fence-rails apiece, which we laid parallel to each other about six inches apart, and slanting from an old stump to the ground, upon which we lay down with our oilcloths for covering, and slept the dreamless sleep of utter weariness. How the rest fared who were not so comfortably provided with beds, no one asked and no one cared. A short campaigning renders men selfish enough. Many were heard grumbling next morning and cursing their superior officers for making them pass the night in a noisome, miry swamp. In an hour or two we reached the old camp and so ended the Battle of Seven Pines. It was a splendidly conceived movement, and but for the wounding of General Johnston and the incompetency of General Huger, as well as the miscarriage of the General's orders, it would have put an entire new face upon the state of affairs. Indeed, after General Johnston was wounded, there seemed to be no fixed plan nor concerted action. In no case did any of our attacking force have the proper reserves, and thereby we failed utterly to accomplish anything except at an enormous cost of life to drive the enemy from his camps and hold them. General Johnston, when he determined to attack on the 31st and had informed himself of the position of the enemy, made the mistake, as I said before, of supposing that only one corps instead of two were across the river. Seven Pines was called by the South a battle of blunders. Believing that one-third of the Yankee force was cut off by an impassable stream and swamp, he intended hurling his whole force upon that third before it could be reinforced. Through the wonderful industry of the foe, the Chickahominy was bridged by pontoons, impossible as we thought it would be, in an inconceivably short time, and reinforcements were hurried on by thousands. But the history of the war for us is full of is and buts. The head that conceived, the hand that pointed the way, was stricken down by a bullet, and then chaos came. Brigadiers and major generals blundered. Desultory attacks were made. And instead of driving the enemy into the swamps of the Chickahominy, they reformed their line and drove us back holding their position until dark, and then retreated to their reserves. It is true we held Casey's division camp, but it was a barren honor, and the dreadful loss of life it entailed upon the two brigades of Kemper and Rhodes did not begin to pay for its capture. The New York papers gave highly colored accounts of this great military wrestling match. The description of the first day's battle was partisan, of course, but rather fair, for they acknowledged the loss of Casey's division camp with all its munitions and stores. But they averred on the next day, June 1st, by a magnificent bayonet charge in which they fought an overwhelming force, they swept away the rebel divisions and recovered the camp which had been lost the day before, the rebel loss being estimated at thousands. How was such enterprising correspondence, such a plain, unvarnished falsehood, should have remained uncontradicted and allowed to go down to posterity as history is inexplicable? 
for mr swinton the fairest and most impartial historian on either side in his book the army of the potomac is misled by these grapevine reports and states that general sumner advanced on june first and retook much of the ground lost on the previous day longstreet held the redoubts and occupied casey's division camp all that day awaiting an attack none came the fight we witnessed having been only a heavy skirmish that could not under any circumstances have been designated as a battle the truth of the whole matter was that both sides claimed too much and there was just a little too much bragging all around the conclusion that must be deduced after weighing the merits of both sides and their losses was that it stood a drawn battle in this great game of military chess there was no checkmate the enemy lost their castle we are knight and the vast contest remained still to be played the northern papers spoke however of their churches having celebrated the great victory by te deums there was no exulting for us no rejoicing only a great nerving of the people for deadlier encounters only a tighter strain upon the muscles for this life-or-death tug as for our crack brigade being between three and four thousand strong we have seen how it was handled how it was placed in action had this been managed skilfully who can tell seven pines might have been a proud name to southern ears as it was the brigade lost between three and four hundred killed and wounded and in return killed hardly a half-dozen of the enemy for probably not twenty-five of the whole command fired off a single gun from that time from the battle of seven pines whether justly or unjustly the privates of the brigade lost confidence in their commanding officer and ascribed all the useless bloodshed to his incompetency this was but one instance in many of bloody blunders that were constantly happening in our army made by men of no military training and who possessed no soldierly qualities they were not only not court-martialed but every effort was made to hush up the untoward affair and they were allowed to keep in command and concoct fresh butcheries what mattered it in this case of storming a camp in a column of fours only a hundred homes were made desolate and twice that number of stalwart men crippled for life between the upper and nether millstone the private in the ranks had a dangerous time of it end of part one chapter eighteen